we do invite you just again, Lord God, as we come, Lord, we want to worship you through your word. We want to hear from you, Lord, and Lord, just keep our hearts open to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2 says this, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And seven times in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God's creation is good. But now, for the first time, something is not good. More specifically, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, you, have not- you may have noticed that, that actually Adam isn't complaining of loneliness It is God, not Adam, who announces that it is not good. And the truth is that God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows that there's a lack of completeness. And so something more is needed before mankind is finished. And God can declare everything very good. So what's missing? Well, after all, Adam already has fellowship with God. He can enjoy the beautiful garden. He can eat its fruits. He, can, he actually finds fulfillment in accomplishing his daily work. And he can even play with the animals. Can you imagine playing tig with a grizzly bear? Or perhaps um, hide and seek with an eagle? Not going to win, obviously. But, you know, but, <laughs> but something is still missing. And God goes on to define what is missing. Adam needs a helper. In Psalm 121 verse 2, the same phrase is used in the relationship to the help that God gives in a crisis. So it says, my help, same word, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or in 2 Kings chapter 14, 26, helper is used in connection with the help given by by an ally in war. It says, the Lord has seen how bitterly everyone in Israel whether slave or free, was suffering, there was no one, there was no one to help them. But what Adam needed was not help in battle, and it wasn't help in a crisis, and it certainly wasn't help with the washing up, but strengthening from someone suitable for him. And there's a challenge here, particularly if you are a little bit of a loner, You, perhaps like me, are very comfortable with your own company. You may think, actually, that's a real strength, even quite proud about it. But actually, is it really a strength? It can be a potential weakness. We need to remember that God has designed us for togetherness. None of us can reach our full potential alone. So in verse 19, this sort of talent Um, parade begins. Every animal, every bird, every creature comes before Adam and he names them all. In doing so, Adam is achieving the purposes that he has made, that he's been made for. And by naming the animals, Adam is ruling over them as he has been designed to do. Because as we saw in the previous verses, God's blessing on man 
includes purpose and it includes meaning. See, Adam was to work in and to look after the garden, a bit like, I guess, a park keeper in charge of a park. For his purpose, and for that matter, our purpose, is found in showing God's likeness. We are made in the image of God, so we show the likeness of God by ruling over the creation that is under us. So all the animals are paraded before Adam, each one with its unique strength. And if you think about it, there's an elephant and be a horse or a dog. And they all have things that they can do that you simply can't do. Do you ever think it'd be handy to have a trunk, like an elephant's trunk? You know, it'd certainly solve the whole environmental problem with plastic straws, wouldn't it? Just a thought. <laughs> or imagine being able to run as fast as a horse. We've been doing some park runs with some of the guys over here. And on all Saturday morning, I'm thinking, I'd love to be a horse this morning. Just be able to beat them. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but the conclusion is that none of them are suitable helpers. And perhaps controversially, not even man's best friend, the dog. None of them can supply the strengthening that Adam specifically needs. But notice one more thing. God gives Adam autonomy here. God waits to see how Adam will name these creatures. He has got decisions to make, and he's got a God-given authority. But in this whole process, something's missing. Because Adam needs a helper to be with him in this process, someone alongside him. If you remember back to the previous chapter, verse 28, it says that God spoke to them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fishes of the sea, the birds of the, of the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. Listen, God has not made us to be alone. That is the big picture of Genesis chapter 2. We're not made to be alone. Carries on, verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. So in order to be complete, Adam needs to be strengthened. But the question is, what kind of strength? Well, it's not physical strength. The outcome of the animal parade in verse 19 is certainly proof of that, because none of them were suitable. And it's not just about company. It can't come from another man. So God created woman. Now, there are many people in modern society today that find verse 22 difficult and maybe even offensive. After all, is the Bible really saying that a woman is simply man's spare rib? Listen, there are certainly some people who will read that today, and that's the message that they take out of verse 22. 
But woman is certainly not a lesser creature. The same God who made Adam also made Eve and created her in his own image. The simple fact is that Adam needed Eve. Not a single animal could do for Adam what Eve could do. So he welcomes her in verse 23 with joy, with excitement, declaring that she is one with him, even though she's separate from him, because she is of his very essence, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and yet she is not man. Matthew Henry comments, is, is, is actually, he sums it up perfectly, I think, perhaps. He says, she was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. In 1 Corinthians eleven seven, Paul wrote, Woman is the glory of man. Warren Wisby adds, If man is the head, then woman is the crown that honors the head. See, God has got an intention here. He's got a, a purpose here for the creation of woman. He's not doing anything by accident. This is not chance. In verse 24, he tells us his reason why. People are to separate from their parents to be united in marriage. And right here in Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning of the, of the Bible, Scripture extols the importance of marriage. In the rest of the Bible, sexual intimacy within marriage is seen as this recreating of this one flesh idea of Adam and Eve, this idea of complete unity, this togetherness. And even though at times that union is far from ideal because we are imperfect people, but this phrase, this phrase, one flesh, implies that anything that breaks the physical bond of marriage can also break the marriage itself. An obvious example, of course, is death. When, when, when one person dies, the other is free to, re, to remarry, but also I, adultery or sexual immorality can break the marriage bond. Listen, it's so important that we guard our hearts and our minds, that we live in purity before God, before one another, before our spouses. Now, you need to notice that the pattern that is given here for marriage isn't Adam's idea. It is birthed in the loving heart of God for the blessing and for the benefit of mankind. So no matter what politicians or courts have to say, or even what society permits, when it comes to marriage, God has had the first say right here in Genesis chapter 2. And listen, God will have the last word as well. So I want to highlight four Purposes ordained by God from this first marriage in, in, in the, the Garden of Eden. First, simply this. We need companionship. God wanted a suitable companion for Adam, so he gave him a wife. Someone who was his equal, who complimented him, who would understand him and help him, but she was not the same as him. And although male and females equally represent God's glory and bear God's image fully on their own, they do this in a unique and in a distinctive way. But in relationship, man and woman together reflect truths about God that just aren't reflected by male alone or by female alone. We'll come back to that in a moment. But we need each other. 
Also, this companionship is about growth, it's about maturity. It's why Martin Luther called marriage a school for character. And marriage often brings out the very best and unfortunately also the very worst sides of our character. But it's an opportunity for us to show and to grow in faith, in hope, in love as we serve and as we care for one another. But secondly, the second purpose of marriage is for sexual intimacy. So it's very clear that when God created man and woman, that God created sexual beings. And the Bible, and therefore God, actually speaks probably a lot more about sex than most of our churches tend to do. And when God created Adam and Eve, the first thing he said to them back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. To put it bluntly, God said, enjoy each other, have sex, and produce lots of children within the boundaries of marriage. And marriage provides the God-given right to enjoy sex and to have children. And listen, sex is good. After all, God made it, and God made everything good. So what this world has tainted and distorted needs to be regarded as the most wonderful, the most beautiful thing. The problem is sin has affected the sexual desires of our hearts and our minds, and the result is that sex often is driven more by lust than by love, or by selfishness than by selflessness, or by depravity and not by purity. So every one of us probably has a fallen view of sex until it is corrected by God's Word. Now, there are two extreme views that have been held by people today. It really depends on your upbringing to some extent. By the way, both of them are wrong. The first is this, is that sex is dirty. And therefore, it should not be enjoyed. It should only be used for the production of children. A number of years back, I was running a little discipleship group, and a, a young couple came to me, been recently married. they just come to faith in Christ about 68 weeks before that, and they said to me, or he came to me one day and says, Keith, sort of, can I ask you a question? He says, of course you can, anything. Is it okay for us to have sex now that we're Christians? I says, of course it is. It's a gift from God. He looks so relieved. But, um, <laughs> but actually, some people have this idea that, that sex is dirty. Listen, that is a distortion of the truth of God's word. The second way that people think wrongly about it is that sex is everything. And therefore, sex becomes an end in itself, and it becomes a means of selfish pleasure. I say both these views are wrong. They're contrary to what the scriptures have to say. Instead, sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. It is private. It is personal. It is intimate. So God not only wants us to have the ability to have children, but also the freedom to enjoy sex within marriage. However, sex outside of marriage is a sin. And the Bible repeatedly warns us to avoid sexual immorality. It leads us to the third purpose of marriage, which is to encourage the need for self-control. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And the Bible is very clear that if someone is not your wife or your husband, you should not, look, you should not think about, look at, 
touch or talk to her in her or him in a sexual way. To do so is a sin. And Paul describes this as idolatry. And what Paul means is that instead of worshipping God, we've talked a lot about worshipping God this morning, but instead of worshipping God, we are worshipping sex or we're worshipping another man or another woman. And this is challenging. After all, we are sexual beings. And this is the way that God has made us, but it's also why God has designed marriage. Because marriage is the only place where sex can be fully enjoyed without guilt or without abuse. A healthy, loving marriage relationship alone provides the security, the trust, the confidence for those intimate expressions of love. And God is glorified in the purity of sexual intimacy within marriage. So it's not wrong to enjoy sex. Neither is it wrong to enjoy looking at, touching, or talking to your, or looking at, touching, or talking about your spouse's body or sexual matters with your husband or your wife without guilt. Songs of Solomon is very useful here. Provides a helpful framework for conversations about love and, and sex within marriage and also this picture of the beauty of marital, marital intimacy. It's not written using explicit or um, obscene language. The language is poetic, it's descriptive, it's not coarse, it's not vulgar, it's also really passionate. So an example, Songs of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 5, reads, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. They, they, gaze, they, sorry, they graze among the lilies. Now, that's not language we would use today, I admit. But actually, we would do well to imitate this kind of romantic, this poetic language within marriage. Have you ever, husbands, wives, have you ever considered writing a poem or a letter or sending a card to your wife or your husband or just simply expressing your love in unexpected ways within your marriage. So sex must never be seen as the only expression of love and intimacy within marriage. Holding hands, non-sexual touch, kissing, hugging, talking together, maybe are even more important ways of expressing love. You see, even in marriage, sex and ultimately your relationship will be destroyed by lust. And sex is about expressing love, it's about giving pleasure to your spouse. The problem is that we are sinners, our natural instinct is towards lust. So we must guard against it taking over our lives. Unfortunately, far too often this world has invaded our homes, it's invaded our minds, our television and our movies are projecting this false image of sex. Leads, it leads to sometimes impossible expectations. But just like every other part of our marriage, you will not have great sex without getting to know each other, without investing time and energy into your relationship. So it's just as important within marriage to live with self-control as it is if you're single. The truth is that husbands and wives can be drawn closer together through selfless sex or actually left feeling bitter resentful and used by egocentric spouses. So develop a healthy view of sex within marriage as God's gift to be enjoyed by you and your spouse, but also prayerfully confess and repent of your sexual sins before God and your spouse. And so important for each and every one of us that we have a good biblical understanding of what God says about marriage and sex
so essential that we get it according to God's word. Fourth thought is this, is that marriage is an illustration. Marriage is not the ultimate goal for humanity. It's not. Instead, it illustrates the loving relationship between Christ and his church. In the Old Testament, this idea of one flesh, this union of marriage, is a picture of the greater one spirit union of every believer with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So the creation of Eve is pointing us to our ultimate dignity and our destination, our union with Christ. Adam was put to sleep and his side was opened that he might have a wife. But Jesus died on a cross His blood was shed that he might have a bride, his church. In that ultimate act of love, we see how Christ loves the church, cares for it, and seeks to cleanse it and to make it more beautiful for his glory. That's what we've been talking about already this morning. That's that's why we worship. We are his bride. We come before him with purity, acts of worship and love. the ultimate way we should be living. And so that one day Christ will claim his bride and present her in purity and glory in heaven. So the question is, what is the true biblical solution to loneliness? Is it marriage? No. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul explains that there is equal value, in fact, even advantages in singleness. It's very easy for us to see human marriage as the solution to all our loneliness problems, but God's Word says that the true solution is divine marriage. Apostle Paul writes in Revelation 19.9, Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, This is the true Word of God. So what is our destination? It should be to know Christ. It should be to be part of the bride of Christ that one day we will celebrate together with him as his bride, the ultimate marriage. That is our destiny. That is the hope that we have. So whether you're married or single, many people can feel alone. Many people can feel isolated. So as Christ's church, we need to be looking out for people who are struggling and alone. Again, we've heard that already today, have we not? And we can all improve in this area. Listen, we can all get better at just loving and caring and being there for, for one another. However, if your only solution to combat loneliness is to find a husband or a wife, unfortunately, they will let you down. If you go into marriage expecting to find all your fulfillment, your joy, and your strength in another person, I hate to tell you that they will eventually disappoint because no one can deliver that and no one can live up to that level of expectation. But don't hear what I'm not saying. There is, of course, unquestionable blessing to be found in marriage. It is a gift from God. The truth is that marriage itself is the most beautiful illustration that every married couple is called to display for God's glory, and it's this. 
It is to let this world know that our strengthening comes from God himself through Jesus Christ. He alone can truly satisfy. Listen, you need him. Whoever you are, you need him. So whether you are married, whether you're divorced, whether you're single, you can find your hope and your joy in Christ, strengthened by him, companionship in him, self-control and fulfillment in him, as together we display God's glory and we bring praise to his precious and to, to his most holy name. Let's stand together, let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have spoken today. And Lord, there's much that we need to perhaps go home and reflect on and pray into. But Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the beautiful example that marriage gives us of the bride, the church, and Christ himself. And Lord, we pray, Lord, for those of us who are married, that we would live in purity within our marriages. Lord, but also those of us that are single, Lord God, that we would live in purity before we're married. Father, we pray as your church, Lord, that we would be your pure bride. And we pray for that cleansing. But thank you, Lord God, that there is cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, that there is hope, that there is freedom, that there is companionship, that there Lord, there is always hope in you. And so, Father in heaven, we just again, we say, pour out your spirit, Lord, on your people, Lord, on me, on my friends here. Pour out your spirit, Lord, as you work within our hearts. Lord, reveal to us those things that need to be put right. Lord, as we, as we align ourselves with your word, as we as we respond to the prompting of your spirit, Lord God, that we would walk in your power, in your strength, that we would be examples to those around us. But Lord, ultimately, you've called us to be worshipers. Lord, our, our, you created us, Lord, to worship you and to enjoy you forever. So Lord, strengthen us in this area. As a church, as individuals, strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.